Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for the ASHP Advocating for Impact podcast, where every episode covers a policy issue impacting the practice of pharmacy. We'll do our best to translate the policy and the politics to help you understand how these issues affect your practice and your profession. My name is Jalan Schulte-Wall. I'm ASHP's Senior Director for Health and Regulatory Policy, and I will be hosting today's episode. And today I'm joined by my colleague, Mike Ganio, our resident compounding and USP expert and the only pharmacist on this podcast today. We're going to cover one of our favorite topics, which really got going the year we both joined ASHP, and that's compounding, namely FDA compounding and oversight. So before we kind of launch into the discussion, I'm just going to give a quick kind of refresher on where we are with compounding in 2023. So as everyone probably remembers, this was all kicked off by NACC, the New England Compounding Center disaster, and there was a law, the Drug Quality and Security Act, which kind of set out a new paradigm for compounding and gave FDA more oversight over compounding. And over time, FDA has built out the regulation stemming from this law. So we got an initial set of guidances in, I believe it was 2016. It's been a long time now. And initially there was some pushback about health systems having their own guidance, but FDA felt that the compounding structure in hospitals really did deserve their own framework, that it was different than the way compounding is done in community pharmacies or independent pharmacies or even in some outpatient pharmacies. But the key here is that there are a couple of different sets of guidances depending on where you sit in the ecosystem. If you're a 503B, there's a different set of guidances. If you are a community pharmacy, there is a different set of guidances. You're a 503A pharmacy as a community pharmacy. But if you are also a 503A, but your hospital health system, you have your own guidance. And before we even launch into what the guidance says, what it said initially, and then what it says now, we wanted to say down the road, it's important to kind of remind folks when we're talking about compounding for FDA purposes, FDA's definition of compounding is different than USB's definition of compounding. So just right out of the gate, when I think about compounding, you really have to consider how the product is being prepared. So if you're just manipulating a sterile product, preparing it according to the package instructions, that is not FDA compounding. FDA compounding requires a change to a product for an identified patient. There are some parameters around what the change, it has to be a clinically significant change. Otherwise, you get into a question of whether you're just creating a copy. So you really do have to have a real change to the product to qualify as an FDA compounded medication. So that's, you know, FDA doesn't want to have anything to do with just standard preparation. That is still all going to fall under USP. FDA has limited resources, so they really want to focus on things that they consider higher risk. So that would be practices where you're preparing a lot of non-patient specific preparations, but you're doing it in a way that either, you know, you're adding a different diluent than what's in the package insert, or you're making some change to the way it's supposed to be prepared or you're adding new medications together. You know, there are a lot of different things that would qualify, but what doesn't qualify across the board is just preparation according to package instructions. So that's sort of the guiding principle, the first thing you're going to look at when you're thinking about FDA guidances. So then once you're looking at what you're doing, if you are doing non-patient specific prescriptions in an almost every hospital is, you're going to look at what the FDA requires. And so initially when the guidances were proposed, this was a wholesale change in how hospital health system compounding was going to be overseen. And the idea was for hospitals and health systems, you were going to be limited in a specific way. So 
FDA initially, and this was the initial version of the guidance, said, look, we want to make sure that if you're going to be doing a lot of non-patient specific compounding, there are some guardrails around it. And you had the lawyers at the agency sit down and draft a guidance. And what they came up with was a one mile radius. So you had to compound for your own patients only. You couldn't compound discharge prescriptions. And then you can only compound and send compounds within one mile of the pharmacy where you were compounding, and it had to be to your own facilities. So in some cases, hospital campuses are longer than a mile. You know, So if you have an outpatient clinic down the road, you're not going to be able to send anything that's prepared over there that meets FDA's compounding definition again. You're going to have to either register as a 503B or buy everything from outsourcers. So that's where we stood initially, and that was not the best option. So we went back to the agency and said, look, we really want to have a workable framework that takes into account hospital and health system care delivery models. And we suggested that they adopt USP beyond use dating. And again, they came back and said, we're going to revise this guidance a little bit. So instead of having kind of this three-pronged test, they now have this requirement about when a product leaves a pharmacy and it's a 24-hour use or discard after the product leaves a pharmacy. So there are a lot of questions about what that means. What does it mean to leave a pharmacy? Why 24 hours? They're good questions. These are questions we pose to the agency. And once you've gotten to the point where you have a product that's left the pharmacy, then whether or not the agency is going to consider what you're doing risky and get involved in oversight, it depends on a number of other factors, you know, that are kind of outlined further down. We'll talk about those in a minute. But this is where we are. We're now away from geographic limitation and into this 24-hour requirement and then a risk-based assessment. And I will say, again, we're not at an ideal place. And Mike can add what his thoughts here in a second. But this is a much better place than where we started. So it's not perfect, but it's definitely a far cry from the kind of disastrous one mile radius requirement. So Mike, what are your thoughts on where we sit? Yeah, I kind of agree. Better, but still not there yet. Both of these are arbitrary, let's be honest. But you know, the intent from FDA is to prevent wholesale compounding on a very large scale, you know, you contaminate an entire batch of something and now you've got tens, dozens of patients potentially affected by it. So they're trying to mitigate that risk. So the one mile rule would have prohibited, obviously, how much you could dispense. Same thing with the 24 hour requirement. The idea is that you are limiting how much is produced. So this causes workflow problems clearly for any hospital pharmacy, because it's just not realistic to have to go and restock a remote clinic or something daily. It just is not feasible. There are multiple problems with this because, you know, what are you more comfortable with? Are you more comfortable with a technician making 10 a day and getting that correct every single day of the week? Or are you more comfortable with a technician preparing 100 all at once, potentially with better quality control because it's a single exercise and, you know, potentially there's a pharmacist who's able to observe versus having to do it every single day. You can make an argument either way there, but you're now forcing the hand of the site to try to do this daily. So while the number of patients exposed may not be as high, you have a task that could be done as a single exercise done multiple times throughout the week. You know, the other issue is that while I understand the 24-hour from the removal of the pharmacy, FDA really hasn't done anything to mitigate the risk here. You know, the idea that you would have to prepare it once every day is actually not true. You know, so if you work within USPB on use dates, you could still make that 100. You can store them in your pharmacy. You just have to go and restock that area daily. So the same 100 patients could be affected 
either way. So it really, it's arbitrary, it's not workable, and we think there's a better solution. The good thing about this is that risk-based assessment that you mentioned. So whereas the one mile seemed to be kind of hard and fast, this one at least allows, I don't know if enforcement discretion is the right word, but if they are going to evaluate for regulatory action, they're looking at a set of conditions. The first of which is poor compounding practice, a lack of sterility assurance, which basically references in sanitary conditions. Well, you should be following that anyway. So not a big deal. Second one is compounding for not for emergency use. This gets kind of tricky because I question how FDA would interpret emergency. I would pose to the FDA, if you would prefer to have a prescriber, provider, nurse practitioner, whomever, drawing stuff up at the bedside or have something that was prepared in a ISO 5 hood inside a clean room that's compliant with USP that was done you know, using all the quality controls in our pharmacy clean rooms, which would you rather have? So yeah, it may be a planned procedure because that's one of the examples FDA uses, but that doesn't mean it's realistic to have individually prepared product for that patient you know, from the night before. I think having those two options, I would choose the pharmacy product versus having someone have to compound at the bedside. This is kind of an area for some more clarity with FDA and some more advocacy, I think. And then routine large amounts of non-patient specific compounded products. And again, to Jillian's point, if you're preparing a bunch of cefazolins or vancomycins, this is not compounding from FDA's perspective. So if you're doing an inordinate amount of lidocaine with sodium bicarbonate for lidocaine, and potentially FDA is going to look at that as, you know, that's high risk. It could be maybe you're selling them off the back of a truck somewhere. Okay, extreme example, but still. Are you doing things within reason? And more than likely you are because anything you produce that you don't use, you're wasting. So you're probably making just enough for what you need. So really those risk-based assessments aren't that terrible. But again, I think there's room for improvement on this guidance. And we have through multiple avenues, Jillian and I both had this conversation with FDA, both you know official recorded public comments and through different in-person or virtual, I guess, over the last couple of years meetings. That's kind of my thoughts. Yeah, it's really interesting. I actually hadn't thought about this when I was putting this together. But this is sort of the conversation that goes on with FDA. So you have a lawyer on one side of the room <laughs> and you have a clinician on another. And the thing about FDA is, you know, they have a lot of staff. There aren't a ton. There are pharmacists. They aren't necessarily in the regulatory policy group. And even if they are in the regulatory policy group, they may not have health system experience. And so there really is a situation here where this is the value that ASHP brings to the table because what might Mike just explained is going to make sense to a clinician. It's going to like sound like the teacher and Charlie Brown to a lawyer. So you're trying to translate it into something that makes sense from a legal standpoint. So, you know, FDA's goal here is not to torture hospitals and health systems or even other compounders. It's just to kind of set some bright line rules about how to apply the law. And the problem is the practice is complicated. So applying a law that has like a one single bright line rule, it makes it really difficult, which is why you end up with a risk-based framework. And it's just such an interesting kind of cross section of why we end up with the regulatory policy we do. And this is not to malign FDA. I mean, I will say they're one of the easiest agencies to work with in terms of stakeholder engagement, and they do listen. We did see a lot of changes from the first iteration of the guidance to the second. And the other thing I would note here that I didn't kind of touch on earlier is that this is an interim draft guidance. And what that means, practically speaking, is it is not enforceable. And it's worth also noting here for the non-attorneys listening to this podcast, which may be quite a few people, guidance is the 
agency is best thinking on a topic. It is actually by itself not binding law the way that statute or regulation is. Where it becomes an issue is when states adopt it into their own regulatory framework, and it's by reference. So essentially they say, you know, we're going to enforce all FDA guidances, blah, 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 blah. It doesn't necessarily look at how the guidance is drafted or what that might mean in practice. And so when you enter a draft guidance stage, they are absolutely not enforceable. So if you're in a situation where you have a state board of pharmacy trying to enforce the 24-hour rule at your hospital or health system, that state board of pharmacy inspector is not doing what they are supposed to be doing. I can say that flatly. There is a disclaimer on the first page of the guidance that it is not enforceable and not for implementation. Regardless, this seems to get lost sometimes. So this is one of the areas we really do want to, you know, push folks. If you are seeing this, let us know. We will talk to FDA about it. FDA had this problem with the initial draft guidance with one-mile radius. And the reason they didn't want anybody enforcing it is because they knew it would shift. So now the question is, how is this guidance theoretically going to shift in its next iteration? And the first thing to know here is we have no idea when the next guidance document will drop. The agencies can't share that kind of information with us, even if they wanted to, which, you know, if I were an agency, I wouldn't want to share when my next document was going to be dropped. But the thing that we're really pushing here is what Mike talked about, which is this idea of avoiding wastage, avoiding uh, situations that create workflow issues without increasing patient safety. So one of the things that makes a lot of sense from both a practice and a regulatory framework is to kind of use what's already in existence. So standards that are already being practiced in the field, folks are familiar with them, they are not a surprise, you know, everybody kind of knows the rules and that's USP, which is why we defaulted to saying, look, you really need to think about using USP beyond use states here. Because when you add something like a 24-hour requirement that doesn't actually align with all this other existing layering of regulation update in the federal level, it just becomes unworkable. It just collapses under its own weight at some point. And the thing with FDA is that, again, they have limited resources for compounding enforcement. They want to focus on the highest risk, most concerning behaviors in almost every case it's not going to be hospital and health system compounding or can't. It's going to be large-scale compounding operations that ship across state lines that do a lot of non-patient-specific prescription work. And that's really where they're going to focus. The goal in kind of creating some workable framework for the hospital and health systems is just to say, like, we're not creating a system where they could theoretically undercut the approval mechanism. That's the other thing here. Compounded medications are essentially new medications that are being provided without approval. And so FDA has a vested interest in making sure that that's not happening. And so, Mike, I guess, you know, you're in the situation now where you're a USP expert. <laughs> you get nothing but USP questions all the time. But what do you think about shifting to a USP-based framework? And also, with the new revised chapters, is there anything that kind of complicates that or changes your assessment? No, I think the hospital pharmacies are already struggling with workforce issues, drug shortages trying to fight for like 340B compliance, et cetera. There's enough going on. Streamlining regulations and standards, it really just, it makes sense. You know, look, you've got an inspector coming in from the Board of Pharmacy. Please, I hope it never happens, but you could have an FDA inspector come in. You could have a joint commission come in or DNV or whomever you use. As long as those things all align, it's a little less work. It's a little less hassle. If each one of them has slightly different expectations, it's just unbearable or untenable, as you noted. I don't think there's an issue with using 795 and 797 
and standards. You know, those are developed by an expert committee. FDA has some input on that too. They do have government liaisons to offer input. You know, there's some changes coming to these that could affect some smaller hospitals or hospitals that are using CAI or CAI for lack of a better word, glove boxes that aren't in a clean room, they're going to have shorter beyond use dates once the new chapters take effect. And if they are making products for offsite or you know clinic use, et cetera, then they're going to be limited anyway to 24 hours. And that's if it's stored in a fridge, which is unlikely to happen. So you know, shifting to USP beyond use dates, I think is probably the most obvious solution to make this workable for pharmacies in hospitals and health systems. Will we see that? I don't know. We've repeatedly asked for that both after the first guidance and the second revision to the original guidance. We'll see what happens, but there's a lot of changes coming from USP. I think Folks need to be aware of those. There's a little more structure around the facilities for non-sterile compounding. I think a lot of folks just kind of overlook, you know, you're mixing diphenhydramine with lidocaine, with nystatin, with, you know, whatever your magic mouthwash combination is. That's technically non-sterile compounding under 795. Are your facilities in order according to the revisions? Same thing with 797. There's some new changes. There's different categories now with different beyond use dates that correspond with those different training and personnel requirements. 800 becomes official. We could do an entire podcast on this. So um, we did a l- one earlier with Patty, but it was more of an initial reaction. But yeah, a more in-depth one probably wouldn't hurt just to go through some of the high-level things that people need to be aware of. But yeah, it's a lot of change coming, but nothing there I think is incompatible with what FDA is trying to do. Right. I mean, I think there are still a lot of open questions in general around the guidance. So this idea of leaving the pharmacy, FDA and its guidance makes it pretty clear that it means hitting the hospital floor. So that includes going into PIXIS machine. So even though PIXIS machine is you know, under the auspices of the pharmacy department. To FDA, it's more the physical act of leaving the pharmacy proper. I mean, I think FDA in their minds, they envision this like giant, beautiful, like manufacturing facility in these hospitals when they're thinking about pharmacies. It's, you know, I hadn't seen a hospital pharmacy until I was in my second year at ASHP. I'd never seen one. And so in my mind, what it actually looked like was very different than what it looks like in real life. And I did go to a large health system. So, you know, their facilities are probably quite fancy compared to some of the other options at smaller rural hospitals, you know, that don't have these resources. So the other question around leaving the pharmacy though is what to do about things like robots and tech solutions. And that is a hard question to answer based on the current guidance. There's not an easy response there. And I think FDA is still kind of mulling some of that over. I think they're also trying to educate themselves on exactly where the issues are, you know, if there are particular things that raise red flags around safety. But for the most part, we as ASHP have really advocated for things that improve patient safety and increase, you know, workflow flexibility and allow for, you know, just a better all around kind of safety profile. So we want to make sure that whatever FDA adopts doesn't kind of unnecessarily cut off tech. We also know this is a problem at the state level. We've heard of you know, different things inspectors have said or how they've interpreted the guidance and tried to apply it, which they, again, should not be doing. But it is instructive. It does provide us some level of comfort and saying to FDA, like, this is what we think states are going to interpret this to mean because this is how they are currently trying to interpret it to apply. So that's the kind of stuff we are still kind of back and forth with the agency on. And then I think just in general, there's a question of how best to resolve this 24-hour requirement. It's possible the agency will say, look, we're just going to stick with this. I think it's more likely, though, that they'll find some sort of middle ground. You know, kind of the key takeaway here is they do want to 
recognize the kind of unique pieces of the hospital and health system compounding work versus what you see in 503As that are community pharmacies and also certainly what 3Bs are doing. And the other thing to note here is that FDA fully oversees 503Bs. So, you know, 503B registers with the FDA in part because they know that they are going to be totally beholden to the FDA. They don't have to worry so much about what states are going to do. But it's worth also noting the FDA has always, always, always had the authority to come into your pharmacy at any time. This has not changed. Nothing in this guide has changed that. So, you know, anytime there's a report of insanitary conditions, they can march right into your pharmacy. There's nothing that stops that and nothing that kind of expands that scope here. But, you know, I think our longer term goal is to create a framework that kind of builds on existing regulations or at least repurposes existing regulations and standards that folks are comfortable with in a way that also makes the agency comfortable with its ability to kind of oversee. I do think their preference is to leave most of the regulation to the state. Like I said, they really want to focus their limited resources for this particular piece of their huge portfolio on where it's going to be most meaningful. And that's at some of the larger scale funding operations that happen outside of hospital system. So I don't know, Mike, anything else, big picture, you're really looking to see from the next iteration? No, I think defining pharmacy is going to be key. You know, they could choose to stick to the 24-hour. As we stated, they don't want to see a large multi-state health system compounding a ton of things at one site and then shipping them all over the place. That really is not, that's kind of their intent to stop. So, you know, on one hand, having the ability to load these in automated dispensing machines would be great. And I think most hospital and health system pharmacies could then comply with the guidance if they could stock them in dispensing cabinets. But does that stop what FDA's concern is, which is one site, one batch of contaminated product, making it all over a multiple hospital health system in different states, and then they have another NECC situation on their hands. So looking at it from the lens of FDA, that kind of helps shape our advocacy. And I think you use the word educate. And I think that's a good way to think about any advocacy, really, you know, you're going in to educate, but I think we've built up a pretty good relationship with the FDA staff and we can do that. We can talk to them about what works in a hospital, how a hospital pharmacy works, how do these outpatient clinics work, that we're trying to do the right thing by preparing them in a better environment than what's happening in the bedside. So I think for the next guidance, we'll see whether that 24-hour rule changes to be more in line with 787, or do we get a little more flexibility on what quote unquote leaving the pharmacy means? Those are things I'm keeping an eye on. Great. Well, you provided me a perfect segue with the education piece. So as always, we really encourage folks who are having issues around compounding. If you, as I said earlier, if your state board is coming in and trying to enforce anything, do let us know right away. We can't educate FDA unless we are educated and, you know, we get the best intel from our members. It's worth noting here that everybody who does this on a daily basis is probably better informed than the average compounding policy attorney over at FDA. So, you know, the more information we can provide, the easier it is for them to kind of shape the policy that's whole long term. So that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Mike for joining us to discuss compounding. Be sure that your voice is heard. As a pharmacist and a constituent, you have tremendous influence at the state and federal level. Visit ashp.org to learn more about key issues, grassroots efforts, and ways that you can get involved in ASH Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.